I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 49, 1 through 53. We have arrived at the heart of Isaiah's gospel. Israel will need a great deliverance to escape Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem. Israel is going to need an even greater deliverance to escape the bondage of the human soul. The book of the servant began in Isaiah 41 with God's exhortation, Comfort, O comfort my people. In the development of that section, God's compassion was shown to extend from Israel to all nations. The next major section, the redemption of Israel, emphasized the necessity that national redemption must be accompanied by redemption from sin if the Jews are to truly walk with God as his people. The third major section developed the reality of national redemption from Babylon. That's what we've been calling the great deliverance. That section gave us detail on how God would deliver his people through a foreign servant named Cyrus. This fourth and final section will get into the how of greater deliverance, explaining how spiritual redemption is made possible through a new kind of servant. Isaiah has left this question of how hanging since the very first chapter, where God promised to make the scarlet sins of Israel white as snow, though red like crimson, they would be like wool. The question how was still left hanging in the vision of chapter 6, where the touch of a flaming coal took away the impurity of the prophet's unclean lips. We know he was purified, we just don't know how that works. It's the unanswered how of chapter 19. How can God say of both Gentile and Jew, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance? How do the enemies of Yahweh and enemies of each other come together as one body at peace with God? It's the how of spiritual redemption promised in 4421. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins, like a heavy mist, return to me, for I have redeemed you. How were those transgressions wiped out? How does God do it? How does he purify, atone for, wipe away human sin? How does God bring enemies together as one and bring that one man into his presence to worship? It's not enough for God himself to reign as the divine human king. God has explained to us if he is going to gather to himself a kingdom people, God must also make that people pure and good. How does that happen? We're going to see that it happens through a new kind of servant. Just as we had a new kind of king, we need a new kind of servant, a divine human servant. We're going to get from Isaiah the clearest explanation of how That can be found in the Old Testament. We don't get it right away all in this chapter. Isaiah builds to it through a succession of three servant songs. Each servant song is accompanied by a comment from God regarding the servant. The first two parts also include a comment regarding the response of Israel. That's what the structure is going to be. Servant song, comment from God regarding the servant song, then comment regarding the response of Israel. The number of the songs in this section might be a little confusing. We have three parts, and each part begins with a servant song, but our first servant song occurred back in 42, 1 through 4. 
So now in this section, the first part doesn't start with the first servant song. It's the second servant song. And the second part will begin with the third servant song. And the third part will begin with the fourth servant song. That fourth servant song is the most famous of all the servant songs. And that's what we're building towards. Each of the servant songs includes a spiritual need that must be met and that will be met by a servant. Each of the servant songs also describe that servant as a new kind of servant. This is not the servant Israel, described as blind and wanting. This is not the servant who comes with military might to defeat Israel's earthly enemies. This is a different kind of servant of whom we get a growing picture as we move through each song. In this lesson, we'll cover the second servant song in 49, 1 through 6. God's comment confirming the servant in 49, 7 to 13, and the comment regarding Israel's response in 49, 14 to 53. Before we jump into the text, let's start with a reminder of what we already know about the servant from the first servant song in 42, 1 to 4, and the accompanying confirmation from the Lord in 42, 5 through 9. The need highlighted in that song is justice on the earth. That need is mentioned three times through the song. He will bring forth justice for the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. The need is not limited to Israel. This servant will be a light to the nations. The servant is described in terms that point us towards a unique kind of servant. God describes him as one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The language of justice and of the spirit connect this new kind of servant with the new kind of king from our previous book. In Isaiah 9, 6, we were told this new king would establish his ever increasing kingdom with justice and righteousness. We were also told in eleven two that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. There's another phrase that makes this servant stand out. We are told he will be appointed as a covenant to the people. That's odd language. How is a person a covenant? It's something unique. Along with the unique way this servant is described, we learn more about him as his task is explained. The need is a need for justice, but it doesn't sound like the implementation of political or military justice. This servant doesn't carry out his mission through force. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. What will he accomplish? He will be a light to the nations. He will open blind eyes. He will bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and he will release those who dwell in darkness. The Lord ends his confirmation of the servant with the declaration that he is declaring new things before they come to be. That may mean that God is simply declaring ahead of time future details about the servant to come. It can also mean that he's pointing ahead with some details to a revelation that will only be fully made known at that future date. When this servant shows up, it will be a new thing. That's what we know so far about this servant, this covenant of the people. Let's see what Isaiah now wants to reveal in the second song and following comments. Let's start with just the text of the song, Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Listen to me, O islands, 
and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow, he has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The need described in this song is to bring Jacob back to the Lord, to gather Israel to God. Jacob is to be raised up. Israel is to be restored. That language might apply to the national redemption of Israel. But we ended chapter 48 with the warning that there is no peace for the wicked. Israel had failed to experience shalom, the well-being, or peace that comes from faithful obedience to God. And the language here is more relational than the language of national restoration. The focus is not on returning to the land and rebuilding the city. The focus is on returning to God, being gathered to him. Recognizing the relational emphasis explains verse 6. It's too small a thing to restore Israel. The need is universal. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is not simply salvation from Babylon, just bringing Israel back. The need addressed in this song is spiritual and the scope is worldwide. God commissions this servant to restore Israel and the nations to him. How does the servant describe himself in this song? He has made my mouth a sharp sword. He has also made me a select arrow. The servant has been selected by God for a specific task. He is God's sword, God's select arrow. And he's been reserved by God, kept hidden to perform this special task. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has hidden me in his quiver. That last verse set is one of those beautiful Isaiah images that communicate so well. Hidden in God's quiver implies both the special reserve with which God has protected the servant and the special task he is being reserved to perform. He is a special arrow hidden in a quiver to be taken out, aimed, and released when God is ready. The image of a mouth like a sharp sword connects this servant to the word of God. His word will pierce. His word will be effective. That image could fit a prophet kept in reserve and sent forth to proclaim God's word. But more is going on here. This reference to the word connects back to the first servant song where we're told the coastlands wait for the servant's law or instruction. He himself has been called the Lord's covenant here he is called Israel. What kind of servant is this? And nothing in the context encourages us to believe Israel is the hidden arrow in the quiver. Israel is not the new thing God is doing. 
As a servant, Israel has been found considerably wanting. How does blind Israel become a light to the nations? Somehow this servant embodies and fulfills covenant. He also embodies and fulfills Israel. He reveals the word of God in a way that is piercing and effective. How does this servant fulfill the task of restoration and salvation? Again, his manner is curious. Before we were told a bruised reed he would not break. Now we hear the servant saying, But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. There's an aspect of this servant's task to restore Israel that will fail, or at least seem to fail. But he will be vindicated by God and he will be a light to the nations. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I can't help thinking about the prologue of John's gospel. This is John 1, 9 to 12. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jesus is the true light. But the world did not know him and his own chosen people. Israel did not receive him. Though he came as king, he was rejected as king and crucified. It could be said that he toiled in vain. He spent his strength for nothing. And yet, through his crucifixion, he secures salvation for the nations. And through his resurrection, he is vindicated by God. Moving from the second servant song, we now get the Lord's comment on the song in Isaiah 49, 7 to 13. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Saying to those who are bound, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar. And lo, these will come from the north and from the west and these from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. This is Yahweh, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel speaking. This familiar, awe-inspiring name combination creates an utter contrast with the despised and abhorred servant. That's how he's described, though we quickly see that he is not despised or abhorred by God. 
God affirms the servant in his double task of providing salvation to both Israel and to the nations. There's a simple chiastic flow in this confirming commentary from God. According to Moltier, we start with a promise of worldwide effectiveness, first among Gentiles, then with Israel. After that, we see a worldwide gathering, first of Israel, and then of Gentiles. So we have Gentiles, Israel, Israel, Gentiles. The section ends with a song of worldwide joy. The servant's worldwide effectiveness is a surprise. Despised and abhorred by the nation, he somehow becomes a servant of rulers. That probably means rulers recognize him as a servant. Kings see and arise. Princes bow down. The servant's task may initially seem vain and fruitless. He may have been despised, but as a select arrow, he will not fail to accomplish the task for which God releases him. He will see success because of the Lord who is faithful, because the Holy One of Israel chose him. Moving from verse 7 to verse 8, we shift from success among Gentile kings and princes to success with Israel. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. As in the first servant song, the servant is called a covenant of the people. He will restore Israel to the land because Yahweh helps him in the day of salvation. This language sounds somewhat like national redemption, but the context of the song has pointed us to relational restoration with God. Restoration to the land is, is also restoration of relationship. Worldwide effectiveness is followed by worldwide gathering. The chiastic structure of Gentiles, Israel, Israel, Gentiles flows smoothly from the promise of the servant's effectiveness among Israel to the vision of a gathered Israel in verses 9 and 10, saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them, and he will guide them to springs of water. The language, again, could be that of national redemption. They've, they're being brought from Babylon home to Israel. But it's this language of a new exodus that also applies to spiritual redemption. Israel, the people, are journeying to the promised land. God has gathered them. He provides for them. He's bringing them home. The gathering of Gentiles that follows in the next two verses indicates that something more is in mind here than the national redemption of Israel. This gathering is the gathering of a worldwide people. Verses 11 to 12, I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Scholars don't know what place the name Sinem refers to, the modern consensus is that Sinem is a reference to southernmost Egypt. That conclusion is based on a reference in the Dead Sea Scrolls. If so, Sinem points to the far south. If we take the reference to afar in the first verse set of verse 12 to refer to the east, then Isaiah is moving around the points of the compass, 
from a far east to those who come from the north, the west, and Sinem in the south. Or maybe Isaiah accomplishes the same idea by being intentionally vague with the first and last terms. Afar is simply far off, and Sinem is some distant, undefined location. Afar, north, west, and Sinem. The leveled mountains and raised up roads imply a great gathering of peoples. That these peoples come from throughout the earth is affirmed in a concluding hymn of worldwide joy. Verse 13, shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Moving now from the servant song and the confirmation of the Lord, we turn to consider Israel's response to this song. The response is not encouraging. It's despondent and unresponsive. This is how our third section begins in 49.14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Good news does not always sound like good news. It often depends on the attitude of the listener's heart and on whether or not the listener sees the described vision with the eyes of faith. The three parts of our passage have been marked at each point by a change of speaker. In 49.1, the servant spoke. Listen to me, O islands. The next section started in 49.7 with, Thus says the Lord. And this third section begins with, But Zion said. That, But Zion said, does not bode well. Zion does not hear God's declaration with a submissive heart or see this vision with eyes of faith. The servant has spoken of the task set before him to restore Israel and be a light to the nations. God has confirmed this task, but Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Motier comments, the sense of anticlimax at 49.14 could hardly be stronger. The complaining voice of Zion contrasts sharply with the world's song over the work of the servant. Whereas 49.13 bursts with shouts of joy in the heavens, on the earth, and from mountaintops, Zion laments, I'm forsaken, I'm forgotten. This response to the servant song is troubling, indicative of how Israel will in the future receive the servant when he does come. Even so, the Lord takes time here to reassure Israel of two things. And these are two things we probably need to be reminding ourselves of personally. The suffering you have to go through does not mean the Lord has forgotten you. And the inclusion of all nations does not mean the Lord has forsaken you. Just because others are special to God too, that doesn't mean that you're not special to God in your own unique role. And just because you go through trial and pain, that does not mean that God is still not working on your behalf, that God cares about you. The underlying truths Israel needs to remember are truths about who God is and what God has promised to do. When suffering comes, when God seems distant, when we are not sure about our own relationship with God, we have to ask, what do I really believe about God? Do I believe he's good? Do I expect him to fulfill his promises? The Lord God reminds Israel that he is not one who will forget his children he conquers the enemies of his people. 
and he redeems his own. This is who God is. And he's going to do these things in his time, but he's still going to do them. First, he is the one who does not forget his children. That's the underlying truth of verses 14 to 21. In these verses, Isaiah personifies Jerusalem, the city of Zion, as a mother whose inhabitants are her children. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. The city of Zion is to lift her eyes and look around. The people of Israel, her children, even more importantly, God's children, will come back to her. This is the promise. As I live, declares the Lord, you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. Zion, in a sense, is God's betrothed, and her children are the wealth she displays as a bride. The image continues, promising not just some children, but an overflowing wealth of children. For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land, surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, the place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I have been bereaved of my children and am barren, an exile and a wanderer. And who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? God asks Zion to look with the eyes of faith past the time of exile and barrenness and oppression to a promised time of abundance. This could be the promise of physical return, but in light of the language of Zion used previously in Isaiah, this passage can just as easily be understood as looking ahead to a spiritually renewed Israel, to the new city of Zion, bursting with children. The Lord doesn't forget his children, and the Lord conquers the enemies of his people. That's the promise emphasized in verses 22 to 26. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and the princes your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty man, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your sons. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This language, it also fits 
with national redemption. The promise is in verse 25, for I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. That imagery is the imagery of military conquest. The people of Israel are scattered among the nations. They are prey of the mighty, captives in foreign lands. God promises to fight for them. Not only will they return to Israel, but foreign kings will bring them and even bow down to them. And while the language at first works with national redemption, several phrases point us to something more than what is going to occur in the return from Persia. The kings have not bowed down to Zion. Israel gained a brief moment of sovereignty under the Maccabees in the first century B.C., but in reality, they were continuously dominated by a succession of stronger empires, Persian, Greek, and Roman, under which they were allowed to exist as a vassal state. Jews of the first century A.D. during the time of Jesus did not believe the exile had ended. They had the land, they had the temple, they did not have independent national sovereignty under the promised Messiah, the son of David. So what do we make of this imagery? Three images in this text take on meaning of a spiritual redemption, especially when we consider them from our vantage point in the light of the ministry of Jesus Christ, who came first as the divine human servant and will come later as the divine human king. The first image that stands out is that image of the bowing kings and princes. So that doesn't seem to have happened for Zion. How can that be said to be fulfilled? But this image is played out whenever men and women of power bow the knee to Jesus Christ as their heavenly king and seek to aid in bringing his people home to spiritual Zion. And this has played out. Kings and princes have been among those who bow the knee to Jesus. This is an aspect of his already established kingdom. It's not established on earth. Jesus reigns from heaven, but it is a real reign. Every heart who bows before him acknowledges his kingdom authority. I believe this image will be further affirmed when Jesus comes physically to establish his kingdom on earth in the new heaven and the new earth. Kings and princes will also bow down in a very literal earthly way at that time. Second, the image of the mighty man used here is an image Jesus applied to himself. Isaiah says, can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? In the physical sense, we understand this image is a reference to human tyrants like Babylon that hold captive the people Israel in their exile. But Jesus applies this same language to spiritual liberation from the kingdom of darkness in Matthew 12, 28 to 29. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? Third, Isaiah repeats his image of a raised standard in verse 22, and that's an image that has already taken on messianic significance in the book of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. If you can remember back all the way to the prologue of, of Isaiah in chapter 5, the idea of a standard was first used there to communicate God's judgment on Israel by a foreign army that would flock to God's banner. It also had this language of a raised hand, 
God would raise his hand, he would raise his standard, he would whistle, and Assyria would come and execute judgment on Israel and on Judah. In chapter 11, though, that same image was used to refer to peoples rallying under a new standard, the son of Jesse. The Messiah is a standard. In Isaiah, the idea of a standard is going to work together with the idea of a sign. And we're going to see in the last paragraphs a sign set for all peoples, all nations to see. These three images of kings and princes bowing, of rescue from a mighty man, of a standard set up for all people to see, these images take us beyond the conquering of Israel's physical enemies. This is beyond national redemption to include a conquering of Israel's spiritual enemies. We are being pointed ahead to spiritual redemption. The Lord does not forget his children. The Lord conquers the enemies of his people and the Lord redeems his own. That's the promise in our last three verses, moving into a new chapter, chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The imagery here is harsh. Just as the military imagery in the last section was harsh. We move from the image of God's enemies eating their own flesh to the image of God sending Israel away with a divorce certificate or selling Israel as a slave into bondage. This harshness highlights two realities. Human wickedness deserves a strong response. God's justice will deliver a strong response. The imagery of divorce matches the bride and mother imagery of Zion at the beginning of this section. Israel, God's bride, has been sent away. She is sent away for her transgressions. And through the book of Isaiah, those transgressions have been revealed as numerous, very serious, and persistent throughout generations. We began in chapter 1 with an image of a beaten and bandaged Judah, spiritually numb to the discipline of God. They were a people of bloody hands, oppressing the most vulnerable in society, widows and orphans. They were also described as one day being ashamed of the oaks they desired and the gardens they had chosen. That's a reference to spiritual adultery, seeking out foreign gods in sacred groves. The image of divorce used here assumes the reality of spiritual adultery. Israel went her own way and sought out other husbands, other gods. And she did this persistently. This is not a one-time thing. And so God has released her, sent her away to her adulteries. Yet in spite of Israel's ongoing sin and transgression, God has promised through the song of the servant to restore her. God is seeking to restore this wicked, wayward, rebellious Israel. Exile is not proof that God cannot protect Israel. Israel may lament that she has been forsaken and forgotten, 
But that perspective shows a serious lack of spiritual awareness. She, she was forsaken, but only momentarily and because of her own gross sin. God proclaims here that he never forgot her. He's telling Israel this in advance, so they'll know they're not forgotten. I will restore you. I will make you a fruitful bride. The problem has nothing to do with whether or not God is able to restore Israel, but whether or not Zion owns up and acknowledges that what happened to her was right and believes God's promise to restore. The language of this text implies indignation regarding Zion's faithless lament. God has just declared, I'm, I'm restoring you. And, and Zion has said, I'm forgotten, I'm forsaken. Here God's saying, do you think I cannot save as I have just declared I would? Is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver? Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Those are an allusion to the plagues in Egypt. If God wants to strike a nation and save his people, God can strike a nation and save his people. Israel is not in exile because God has forgotten or forsaken them, and they're not in exile because Babylon is stronger. God can restore Israel from the exile of her own making. Yes, he can bring them back from Babylon. But can God redeem Israel from the sin of her own heart? Well, yes, he can do that too. How? Through a select arrow that he has kept hidden in his quiver. Through a servant that Israel's going to reject. God will keep his promises to Zion, but he will not limit his promises to Zion. He gives his servant a double task, saying, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. How will the servant accomplish these two tasks? To restore Israel and extend God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, more will be revealed in the third servant song coming up in our next lesson. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts.